just a word of introduction. Um, as I was preparing for this week, I'm doing the next plenary session, and basically the question of honoring your, your husband is a question that's built on the foundation of what I'm going to be talking about in the next plenary session. And so it made it difficult for me to determine how I would talk to you about a specific before I talk to you about a general that applies to everyone. And so we talked about it in staff, and so what I'm going to do and uh, what Matt and I talked about doing is I'm going to talk a little bit more about the practical application of what my, Matt talked about in the last session. And then we're going to have a time of questions and answers for you. Uh, Matt's going to be here, although I don't know where he went. Oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, Matt's going to be here, and we're going to uh, go through some question and answers, and you can ask, and, and Matt will answer. So I want to start today by reading from 1 Peter, chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 13 and read into chapter 3. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority or to government, governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Matt really dealt with this so well, I thought, as he was speaking in his session earlier. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we come up to this point and we have the general submit yourself in the Lord for the Lord's sake to every institution. You have talking to servants, slaves, submit yourself. You have Christ as the example who submitted himself and suffered, right? And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of your, their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment, the word adornment there is cosmos. You know you have a cosmos? You ladies have a cosmos? Kind of follows you around? 
Okay. Your cosmos should not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, right? Not that you can't wear dresses. Just watch out how cosmic they are, right? (laughs) But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, so that you have another cosmos that attends you. You have one cosmos that's the visible. You have another cosmos that is your adorning in your behavior and in your faith and in your hope in God. They used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, let me tell you a story which many of you have heard before. And it's the story of uh, Annie and I going to my family's Christmas gathering. And on our way to my family's Christmas gathering, we conspired that as a, as a way to open conversation with members of my family, at some point, she would refer to me as her Lord. Okay? Sarah referred to Abraham as her Lord. And so we conspired that we would do this. Well, we got to the Christmas gathering, and at some point during the weekend, I don't know, it was two or three days, I was helping my sister-in-law, the oldest of my my oldest brother's wife, the oldest of my sister-in-laws, the daughter of a preacher, the wife of a preacher, the granddaughter of a preacher, okay? I was helping her set the table, and I said something to Annie, who was in the kitchen. I said, Annie, would you da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And she said, yes, Lord. And my sister-in-law just stopped. What did you say? And of course, by that time in the weekend, I had forgotten we'd had the conspiracy. (laughs) So I had to quick think on my feet. And I said, well, you know, Abraham called Sarah Lord. Remember that? Where is that? Where is that? And it's surprising how we, you know, after generations of preachers, we miss some very important kinds of scriptures and are just unaware of them, right? So we had some good conversation about about Lord, but the reality of our, of our marriage together and the reality of that exercise, it's just been a progressive thing. The, the, the reality of my becoming husband, the reality of her becoming wife, it's been progressive, sometimes very difficult, sometimes tumultuous, Um, oftentimes tumultuous, many, many failures, many more on my side, okay? But I want to talk to you a little bit in terms of application about certain places that Annie and I have become specifically uh, geared, changed in our directives. And I say our directives, 
I have, I have come to recognize and to uh, verbalize the directives in our coming to submission to God on the issue of husband and wife. And so they're my directives and they're our directives. Does that make sense? I give them as directives. Sometimes they come out of my mouth as commands, but in reality they're directives that have attended both of us and that we both have come to love and find comfort in and safety in. And so with Annie's foreknowledge and willing approval, I'm going to tell you some of my household directives and therefore some of our household secrets. Okay? Not all of them. Trust me. And I'm going to say these in terms of commands, commands that are, are given from my perspective to her. And so when I say them, you're going to say, ooh, but I didn't marry my wife and produce this list on our wedding night. Do you understand? But we have worked at becoming husband and wife for years. So the first one I want to say, and they're in no necessary order of importance, and some of them you'll maybe find more light than others. The first one I would say is, wherever I goest, thou wilt go. Okay? Wherever I goest, thou wilt go. When we moved to Bloomington 10 years ago, almost to this day, actually, it was in July 10 years ago that we moved here, uh, I was very confident that we should come here. And do you know that it was almost a year later, a year after the process of deciding to come, a year after we had actually moved, that my wife told me what she had been thinking at the time. It was almost a year later. She didn't want to come to Bloomington. We were most comfortable where we were. We were headed for our greatest period of financial security that we'd ever been in. And providentially and abruptly, we moved to a strange place where she was not comfortable, and she had to immediately transition from gathering eggs to mentoring a PhD candidate. We had a little farm, she had some chickens, she would gather the eggs, and now she's here in Bloomington, and they say, oh, here, Annie, here's a PhD candidate for you to mentor, okay? And it was a year later when she came to me. She never uttered a word against me. It was a year later. John, do you hear that? I don't know what that is. It was a year later when she came to me and talked to me about what she had been feeling at the time. And she said God had just given her grace to keep quiet and to support me in being transitioned here to serve the Lord in the pastorate. And that, that at, during that time, while she was quiet, she had learned not only to love being here, but had learned to see God's providence and God's kindness in moving us here. The second thing I would talk to you about, specifically from our family, is my schedule is your schedule. My schedule is your schedule. 
I'm talking to Annie, okay? Now, sounds harsh, doesn't it? 29 years of marriage, okay? I didn't start by, by bringing these things out to her. 29 years of marriage, we both learned what we were supposed to do. And that really follows on number one, wherever I go, you will go. It means that her life is a life that is made to be a suitable helper for me. And she has come to embrace that. Even to the point of, uh, how many of you are mourning persons? Okay, six, eight. Even to the point of, I get up in the morning and I get up in the morning. I'm just awake. I'm a morning person until about two o'clock in the afternoon and then I have a nice spurt in the evening and then I'm done. 10 o'clock, forget it, you know. <laughs> Annie's not a morning person. I, I've been trying for 29 years to determine her optimum time. <laughs> I think it's between 11.45 and, you know. She does turn a beautiful shade of red when she's embarrassed, though. <laughs> but I get up in the morning, and you know what she does to help me? She gets up. She gets on some clothes that are made for walking in, and she goes with me, and we walk. Because if I walk in the morning, my whole body wakes up, and I'll have a much more productive day. And it's hard for her to do that. It's not what she wants to do, but she's my helper. She's my helper. I love her for that. I love her for that. Okay? Number three, my schedule is the children's schedule. This one's going to even be harder, I think, for you to process. My schedule is the children's schedule. Our family runs as a family of service to God because I run as a servant to God. And so my schedule, as that service works, is primary. And so we can't, we can't be interrupting my work so that we can defer to the children. That doesn't mean you can't have fun with the children. That doesn't mean the children can't play soccer. But do you understand how it can bind the ministry and the work of your husband if your life is dictated by your children? And do you understand the power that you have to coerce and to push for that to be the agenda? We should not defer to our children. Our children are there to be improved by us, to be raised by us, and to be taught by us. And they should learn to serve and defer in that age. You know, again, I would refer to Matt's uh, breakout earlier. When he talked about deference, it was so good. I don't think, I don't remember you talking specifically about teaching deference to children. Did you in there at some point? That's the part he cut. Okay. Listen. 
we have work to do with our children to teach them deference. I'm noticing children everywhere haven't the slightest idea how to defer. Not the slightest idea. And it's as simple as, as how they address adults. And it certainly includes their, uh, their interrupting and how we treat them if they're interrupting us. And, and that's another one I would say, I will be listened to before the children. I will be listened to before the children. I don't want to be interrupted on something I'm saying so that Kimmy can find out where the popsicles are. Because if I am, Kimmy is taught that she is the one in the family that's deferred to and that I am not the one that's deferred to. Does that make sense? And so we have to teach our children deference and we have to do it with very, very practical things. So if you find yourself being interrupted by your children when your husband is trying to communicate something to you, do you ever want your husband to communicate to you? <laughs> okay, come on, is this not really a thing women want to have happen? They want their husbands to talk to them, right? And he finally talks to you, right? And the kid runs up and says, where's the popsicles? And you just... You got a good thing going, stick with it. I'm going to have Annie talk about the next one. In fact, I'm going to do the last two that I'm going to do, then I'm going to have her talk, and, then, and we're going to go into some questions, okay? Um, in our house, you will have long hair, or longish anyway. Okay, so do you have to have long hair? Well, I want to force all women to have long hair, yes, but, but in our house, I believe what 1 Corinthians says, that long hair is given for a covering, and that it is what the word used there for glory. It's the glory, it's the word doxa. Does that sound familiar? The doxology of a woman. And it's her praise and honor. Now, I like it. And so she defers to me by keeping her hair long. And you know, I know that that's hard to do. I know that it means longer drying, more attention, brushing, all these kinds of things. I know that's absolutely true. But it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Here's another one. And again, this is for my home. And um, things are apply and are helpful when they are. I have a story about that, but I'm not going to tell it for the sake of time. Uh, I have a story to tell you about an incident with Annie where she came to me and asked, um, could she get a job at Kohl's? This was after we moved here. Could she get a job at Kohl's? She thought, I'll work. Her motives were very good. She just wanted to help us have a little extra money. So could, you get a, could I get a job at Kohl's? I'll just work two nights a week. I'll work nights. I'll go to work while you and the kids go to bed. I'll go to work. 
and then that's all I'll do. Well, not that's all I'll do. <laughs> that's not what I mean. But that's what I'll do in terms of working outside the home. And I said, no, you may not have employment outside the house. Our work here has to have your attention. Our home and our work in the church has to have your attention. You may not have employment outside the house. And, I, and she asked me another time a little bit later about working, and I was frustrated. And I said to her, no, you may not work outside the house, and I don't ever want you to ask me again. Now, you don't know why I said I don't ever want you to ask me again. And you can ask Annie later, and she can talk to you about that. But it had to do with the pressures on her, and I wanted her to partially and mostly just to be free from ever, ever asking again the concern of it. And so Annie went and she talked to a family member of hers on the phone and she was just talking about the conversation and she said, you know, and I asked Dave if I could work at Kohl's. He said, he said no. And he said, and then he said, I don't ever want you to ask again. Now, what do you think they said? How reasonable of him. <laughs> no, they said, well, what did you say then? Yes, Daddy? And see, remember what, what Matt was saying, and remember what Adrian wrote. It was so beautiful. What she wrote about the, the, the uh, complete opposite realities that attend our lives as people in faith in Jesus Christ and, and the lives of the world, and how they're diametrically opposed, and how the reality is, in the end, we, in service and submission and sacrifice to God, in obedience, receive blessings, enormous blessings. And over and over and over again, the fruit of rebellion is pain and suffering and destruction and loneliness. It's awful. And so don't forget that at all. Don't forget it. Uh, Annie, would you come up and tell them your... Annie's going to tell you one of the... Can she use this, John? Annie likes to talk in front of people. Um, Max wanted me to talk to you about hospitality and how I struggled with being hospitable. Um, and when he first asked me about it, he mentioned me speaking. And he said he was going to speak in front of all women. And I thought, wow, that's really brave of you. And, and then he said, well, maybe I'll have you speak for a little bit. And I thought, no, you can handle it. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then later, we were talking about, he wanted my input about what he was going to speak about. And, and uh, he had his outline already. And he showed it to me. He said, why don't you read through this outline? And, you know, let me know what you think. And so I'm reading through it. And, of course, it comes to this part and it says, Annie speaks. <laughs> and so I said, well, I guess I'm going to speak um, about hospitality. I, um, I struggle with being 
a, very hospitable and having people in our home a lot because I am an introvert. I really am an introvert. And Max is an extrovert and he really is an extrovert. And he loves to have people in and I'm learning and I have learned that I do love having people in our home now, but I really struggled with the thought of it um, when we were going through this time. Um, I'm quiet. I'm, I, I'm private. I don't like noisy chaos. I don't like a change. I like things to be the same. Um, I thrive on routine and I love simplicity. I like things to be simple. So when Max told me when we moved into our new home in Bloomington that he wanted to have people in our home even more often, I was offended. I, was think, I thought he asked me to do something that was impossible for me, for my personality. Um, the idea of be, being even more hospitable was so stressful to me. Um, I, had a, I had a panicked feeling. I just really felt panicked inside and um, I thought, this is just too much. I can't do this. We already, I was thinking of all these reasons why. We already have a small group in our home every week. And the kids have their friends in often, and I can't handle it. So I went to Max with my list um, of all the things that we already do and why, I can't, why we can't do this even more. But he wouldn't budge. He wanted to use up our home for God and for his church. And he wouldn't budge, and he wasn't, uh, he wasn't sweet about it, you know? He was just like, no, we're going to have people in. This is my job. I'm a pastor. You're a pastor's wife. We can do it. So anyway, um, I just struggled with it so much. So then I prayed, and I prayed that God would change Max's heart. I went to God complaining about my husband and um, talking about how unfair he was. And then... Um, After asking God to change my husband's heart, then a very frightening thing happened, and the Holy Spirit told me to shut my mouth and to not talk about my husband like that anymore and to quit complaining. Um, it is frightening when you see your sin, and so um, the sin that I was blinded to um, was revealed to me, and then... I was humbled. And it wasn't just humbled. I, was, I felt so stupid. And I felt really, um, just really foolish for asking God to change my husband's heart when he had called him to be a pastor and to do these things. Um, but we are often blind to our sin. And so I began to repent and ask God to change me and not to change Max. And so I remember that moment, um, knowing God's judgment and knowing what he wanted me to do and also knowing his mercy. And he did change my heart. I got to work at being more hospitable and God was and is my strength for this. He even gives me joy in being a hostess. And I still struggle with this. Um, I still struggle with it.
But I always am brought back to this point where God is merciful and he is helpful. So um, I just wanted to encourage you to trust God as you submit to or, or obey your husband. And even when you don't want to, um, you really need to pray and ask God to help you, and he will help you. Don't think she still doesn't pray for me to change, though. <laughs> so I've shown you some of the directives of my home. And sometimes the directives cause a battle in Annie's heart. And most of the time after the battle, there's a sweet peace of faith without fear, which is talked about in First Peter regarding Sarah. But don't think for a moment I'm not going through a battle myself. And don't think your husband won't be going through a battle. Your husband, if he would lead you, will have internal battles. Just don't add to his conflict. Don't add to his conflict by plaguing his livers out right? And that's the thing. We work through our marriages. We work and work to become husband and to become wife. And God is so gracious to us that in the middle of the chaos, the sexual chaos of our time, God creates husband and wife. And he beautifully demonstrates it beautifully, beautifully demonstrates it. So, I think I want to stop because I've just talked about some specifics and I want Matt to come up. Matt, would you come up? I talked about being husband and being wife. Let me, let me say one more thing about that. I've noticed something with women when they have children and that is Oftentimes, after the second or third child, the woman stops being a woman with children, and she becomes a mom, a mother. And it's, it is visible. It's like she strives not to be a mom, but to just be a woman with children. And then she resigns and she lets herself fall back on God and just be a mom. And it's beautiful. And I think the same thing is true with wives. We come out of a culture that calls us to, to fight, 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 fight against being a wife. And then suddenly, in his kindness and mercy, God allows us to just kind of fall back like you're falling back onto the, into the swimming pool, right? You just fall back and resign yourself and you're a wife. Suddenly you're a wife. And your husband, he does the same thing. He stops his, uh, 
abdicating, he falls back, and suddenly he's halfway decent husband, right? To the glory of God. Okay, why don't you come and ask questions? There's microphones here and here. Do you have questions you want to ask? You can ask questions of Annie as well. We can call Adrian. I'll get her on the phone. You want to come up to the microphone, Jessica? You briefly mentioned the part that you cut out, but how do you, or what advice do you have for cultivating this in our daughters? I'm sorry, I just couldn't hear. What advice to cause uh, deference or to train our daughters in deference? Boy. Um, From the earliest age, it's just, I don't know, I don't know what to say. It's, uh, it's disciplining, it's making them uh, to understand, to respect the role of a father. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's learning to be humble with, in the challenges with other men or children as they're growing. Um, The, uh, there, a question was posed about uh, should all women submit to all men? My daughter right now, is she's not in here right now, I don't believe, but she's, just a week ago we had a conversation about this because uh, she's trying to learn deference in a church and men are telling her to do things. And the question is, does she have to submit? So I'm going through that with her, and I'm trying to teach her that even right now. And uh, what I've been saying is, no, uh, if you're a woman, you do not automatically submit to all men, even in a church setting. There must be the authoritative structures, uh, pastors, elders, something official over. But then I also want to teach her to not blow away the men. So they don't necessarily have the authority structure over her. But I say to her, he doesn't have a right to tell you to do that. I'm thinking of a guy a few years older than her telling her to do something for the church. And I'm saying, but don't just go at him or say no. She might want to just right away say no. And so I guess I, what I'm saying is I'm working through it with her. And I said, what you need to do is go to her, as I said in the talk some, and you need to, to uh, or, or go to him, and you need to um, approach him with, with uh, deference, even though it's not owed to him. So I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. My wife models it very well, and uh, maybe living it is the, uh, the, the primary thing. Can I say something about that real quick? Um, let's forget the word deference for a second in relation to this, and let's just talk about the fact that males and females are different, even when they're mm -hmm. this big, right? But what our culture says is, don't treat them any different. Make sure that there's just complete equality. Make sure that they learn egalitarianism when they're this tall, when they're this small. Make sure you buy green diapers, not blue and pink, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so what happens is our children from a tiny age are learning, being trained by us, that there's no difference between them, male and female. And then they get to be teenagers and suddenly we spring on them this revelation. Hey, guess what? You're not the same as these people. And it's a mistake. I'm convinced it's a mistake. We had an incident where Annie was watching children at the park and they st the children were mixed. How old? Six? Yeah, little school age children. And they, were, they had uh, put together a game for themselves where they were playing a, a, mo a modified version of capture the flag, but one of the, two of the kids, one on each team, would put a rock in their pocket. And so the, they had to find out who had the rock in the pocket. Well, so it happened that as they were playing, one of the girls had the rock in the pocket, or maybe she didn't. One of the boys was coming up, and he was trying to find the rock in the pocket. And this boy has a sister who has some sensibilities, even as a young person. And she ran up and she scolded him for being inappropriate. <laughs> right? You shouldn't be groping around this girl's clothing, <laughs> even though you're only this big. And Annie realized that she had to modify the rules of the game. And it was appropriate to do. And so I think we have to fr realize from a very early age that we're teaching, we're not teaching separation of sexes. Mm -hmm. And that's even, the, that's even underneath the deference issue. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? And we have to teach that. And all the way up through, mm -hmm. we just don't do it. In fact, t today you were talking about one of these organizations earlier. Today, uh, youth programs today, parachurch youth programs mm -hmm. today, regularly use sex to try to evangelize children. They use this uh, permeability of the sexes where they're groping each other's pockets to try to get the children to have fun and then be around to hear the evangelistic message. Do you know what I'm talking about or am I just speaking about something you don't see? Some of you are shaking your heads. Some of you are looking at me. They play games, like the, the, the game you see people do where they, the, the person sits on a chair and they put a balloon in their lap and then the girl runs over and she tries to break the balloon in his lap, okay? Not good. Anybody here disagree? Okay? But that's a regular kind of thing in these kinds of organizations and they, they don't even separate at teenage years, let alone in the younger years. And we need, to, we need to start paying attention to that as well. I, I was speaking with a, a young lady at uh, lunchtime here and she said the first time she ever heard about deference uh, was in, as a result of her arm wrestling boys and she was able to beat the boys. And she was getting to an age where that was really hurting the boys. <laughs> I mean their egos, damaging them for life. And so she was instructed, you know, you just, even if you're able to, you, she, 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 that was the first time she realized she should not to try to show that she's like them. And that was her first memory of what, of even the word deference was. I don't know if she's here. I, I won't ask her to raise her hand if she is. <laughs> Other questions? I wanted to ask what are some helpful ways that we as women can um, 
start to maybe define and understand the directives in our homes and you know young marriages and we don't necessarily have all of those um, developed through the years but maybe I like organization and rules so maybe how do, how would I draw those out <laughs> sorry <laughs> you know they're in the scripture for you and they're in the scriptures for your husband and both of you need to look to the scriptures and be taught and you can approach your mentors about this or pastors about it uh, the reality though is it's amazing how God works in his time. And, you know, there are things, Annie and I, we just made a radical shift in our checkbook. When was that? At the beginning of this year. At the beginning of this year, I started balancing the checkbook. And it wasn't because of her failure. It was because I was so often a pain to her because I wanted something that she was not, you know, she would have had to keep the checkbook in her mind the way I would keep a checkbook in my mind. And, we're, and so suddenly I'm balancing the checkbook. We've been married 29 years. And I'm finally balancing the checkbook. Now, your husband doesn't have to balance the checkbook. That's not a rule, Okay. But in our home, we found suddenly less fighting and more joy because I was balancing the checkbook. And again, it wasn't any failure on her part. It was just, we should have done it a long time ago if they would have just had that program <laughs> that I bought back then. <laughs> yeah. It's a long process. It's sanctification. It's sanctification. Can you just talk a little bit about um, ways that you honor your husband while confronting them with either just preferences that you have? Um, and you can either be silent about those and let them all just turn into bitterness that you don't get your way ever. Um, or you can be overly verbal all the time about everything that you would prefer to have. Um, and then more seriously about confronting them with sin in ways that um, doesn't make you into the Holy Spirit for your husband, but still honors them and isn't enabling their mm. sin. That's a, a deference question, right? <laughs> uh, I, uh, it, it really depends somewhat on your relationship. There are women who want to confront their husband on everything or question them on everything. And like Esther that I mentioned, if you know, she took a role of building up, I don't know, a collateral for favor. And there are some women, I'm not saying you at all, some women though who would use up all their collateral and not ever have any built up to be able to uh, bring larger issues before the husband. But uh, that's part of it. 
um, part of the dynamic there. As far as confronting him, and what my wife does is, is uh, she, she does what I said in the talk. She will wait for the right time to bring things up. You know, I, I was again talking with somebody else at lunch. The wrong time to bring things up for me is when I walk in the door, you know, after work. That's my worst time. And she'll, she'll wait. There may be something she, that I've said I want to do or that's bothering her, and uh, she may wait weeks. Uh, like Annie said, she may wait a long period of time. And so she's very careful about how she brings things up if, it ha if it's something of gravity. Uh, but at the same time, things need to be brought up. I was speaking with, uh, with someone here just a, a few minutes ago about there just not being communication. No time to actually communicate. And uh, a lot of times things don't have to reach ahead if there's communication. And when, and I had this with my life, with our children, there's been times where my wife and I just haven't had the time to even speak. And things go on and they go on and then, then things start to build up. So we've had to really bring a, a solution to that by making time for us to speak and the right time, things like that. But, uh, does that answer your question? You, I, think, I think any time you're a subordinate, you're in a relationship where you're subordinate, if you're women, if you're men, if you're children, any time you have to discipline the person who's in authority over you, mm -hmm. uh, there is always a way to do it, just like there's always an appeal that you can make, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't talk about this, but you know that you have appeals in the, in the government, in the church government, mm -hmm. that every lesser, every subordinate has appeals that they can, has a place they can go to appeal. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't deal with that because, but you, but you should know that that's true. But when you're dealing with disciplining someone who's in authority over you, just, I think, pray and ask God for patience and the right time. Mm -hmm. And it could be that God will solve the problem for you. Or it could be that just at the right moment, your opportunity will be presented. And you'll say, okay, now's the time I can talk. This is when I can, when I can do it. As far as preferences go, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Um, you know, with sin, how do you call a husband out on sin? One of the things I'd be care careful about, I was thinking about this, you know, where do you draw the line on sin? Uh, because I said in my talk, you must submit to your husband or yield to them unless there's violation of commandment. Well, even that's a little dicey. There, there certainly is a level you cannot go beyond. A husband says, you will not worship God, you will not go to church, if a husband were to say that, a poor husband. Uh, I don't think you can go beyond that, but, but you have to be careful not to start to elevate, and this is when you say preference, you know, that's when we elevate things up to levels they actually are not, typically. It, it's something I like, but we often work them up to my husband's sinning. And, uh, and then it may be your husband actually is sinning, 
And that doesn't excuse not yielding or submitting unless it's this bigger thing. And I, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, uh, Sarah plays along with the husband, you know, as they lie about her identity. Mm-hmm. And she submitted to him. And I don't know if she was wrong in doing that, but she had to trust God, even with the grace there, to play along. So, so there is an element. I, it's very hard to say where you would absolutely cross into not yielding or submitting. It's got to be big, though. I guess my main thought on that was, as I was trying to think this through, was there are a lot of women who try to elevate everything in their husband in an accusation way to my husband sinning against me. He's sinning against me, or he wants me to do this. Uh, you know, if a husband wants a wife to participate in other sexual activity, then she should certainly... I, <laughs> to me, that's clear. But a husband wants a wife to go and recreate on a Sunday, for instance, you know, and maybe she's against it and he's for it. She, I don't think she should, that's not at the same level. I'm, I'm mostly concerned about calling preference sin as you point at your husband or he points at her. Mm-hmm. Does that help? Can we at least address the uh, big issue in the room, which is husbands that are addicted to pornography? Uh, Well, in our church, we have taken this head on, and I think you probably have here also, but wow. The husbands need to be disciplined. Mm Mm-hmm. They need to be disciplined. They need to be disciplined by the church. I guess I'm wondering about a clarification, Heather, on your question. Let me, okay, let's say we're not talking husbands that are not disciplined or haven't been confronted at all. Let's talk husbands that have confessed, and then how does that relationship go forward with Mm. a husband and a wife that are both attempting to live a submissive and a leader, um, you know, godly husband and wife? How does, a, how does a wife respect a husband? There's something about sexual sins that to women is just so repulsive that it's very difficult for women, and we don't ever hear teaching on this anywhere. So yeah. the wives are all just floating out there, and you're not allowed to say anything bad about your husband either, so you can't talk to anybody about it. Mm-hmm. So there's women just all over the place just like, you know, like mm-hmm. dying inside. I can't respect my husband, you know, Like, how do you respect if you don't respect them? How do you submit when they're doing this? Do you ask them? Do you turn into their accountability partner? There's something twisted about that. But, you you know, like, there's just so many questions about this that so many women, and even if the husbands are submissive, I mean, sorry, are Mm -hmm. submitting, you know, to the elders or, um, what's the word? I'm uh, repentant, you know. There's just a lot of still the reality left over after that. I, we started a ministry at our church for the men on pornography, and the first thing we had to do was preach to, uh, to the women. Because every single woman, half the men in the church go to this ministry for accountability. 
It's men who want to fight the sin of pornography. So, all of a sudden, all these men, and half the men are, in the, are going and the other, another quarter aren't going who should be. And, uh, and we had to have our, our uh, wives understand that we wanted to fight sin. And, you know, part of that that we preach, that David preached, is the trapping is, is not, it, it does go into adultery, but it is idolatry. And the trapping of idolatry is, is an addiction. It is, I shouldn't use that word. It is, it's a trap. Men are trapped in it. Our desire is to free them and have accountability man to man. In the last month or two, month at the elder board meeting, we, we had direct uh, confrontation or uh, discipline over a man who isn't, wasn't repenting. But there's no easy way about it. Men are made visual. They fall into this idolatry that offers them everything for nothing. It produces nothing. They know that. And I don't know how to, what to say to the woman. It's a great offense. And grace and forgiveness is needed if, if he's not repenting or working to repent, then, then further disciplines needed. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's a difficult thing. Um, it's difficult, as Matt said, because of how pervasive it is. But I think what he said was so important at the end. You have the reality of repentance. And so the reality of repentance gives you uh, footing to, to work forward in your marriage. And if a husband is unrepentant in this, in this sin and he just won't respond to discipline, I think that's a different matter. But if a, but if a husband is repentant of this sin... Uh, then there is a there's a place for the wife to be able to work with her heart and her faith and her trust to to uh, see the forgiveness come to the marriage. Uh, but it's it's difficult. It's very very difficult. And I and and I don't want to. You know it's. I want you to be aware. What's the percentage now of women viewing pornography, Tim? Do you remember? 30% and rising fast. And so what we see now is a whole world of uh, sexual destruction as it's coming on our culture, as it's coming on our children. It's just growing and growing and growing. And so you have women looking at visual pornography you have women looking at uh, women dealing with women's pornography, which is emotional pornography as well. Can I say a couple yeah, of things about this? Please. First of all, when we have men that are involved in pornography, we do, we do deal with the wives. But many times, the wives don't re realize we're dealing with them. <laughs> now, some of you are smiling, and I think you have an idea what I'm saying. Um, you are not allowed to use your husband's 
sin of pornography as one more justification to be a rebel. And so the implicit, you know, what we could easily fall into here thinking is that, um, and, and I'm telling you, we're accused of this, of looking lightly at the man's pornography and not dealing with him severely enough. I would say from much counseling that there's at least as much a problem of us not dealing seriously enough with women's rebellion against their husband. Are you tracking with me here? So it doesn't make moral equivalency between the sins. But what I would say is it's absolutely imperative that you realize that you are married to a sinner and that you realize your husband is married to a sinner. And the sins of men and women are very different. The sins of women are consistently manipulating and refusing to defer to their husbands. All right? And... Pornography gives you a perfect excuse to do that and to be bitter. And I would also say that there are many things that women do. What is the percent? I think it's 40% now of adulteries and divorces are caused by Facebook. And so when you add Facebook to pornography with women, these sort of innocent relationships you restore with high school sweethearts or with men that you are interested in in your campus crusade group or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Be very, very careful to realize that your husband is not wicked and you're righteous. Okay? And David, how intensely do we have to work on that time after time in our church? Constantly. Uh, This goes to another very foundational thing. We, we don't see sin with the gravity with which we need to see sin and its pervasiveness in our lives and how easily we, are, we can be trapped by it. And our culture, the, the devil is a schemer and he has schemed to trap us and to, and to kill us and destroy us. And so we have to be very, very careful. And... You know, I'm going to say one other thing. If you have committed premarital fornication, (laughs) and again, I counsel all the time, and it's often true that I am lied to and lied to until years after the marriage begins to have trouble, and then people will fess up what was going on. If you have created a desire on the part of your husband to have immoral sex with you before marriage, and then after marriage, somehow he doesn't stop having immoral sex, are you with me? His, his desires somehow are perverted. Realize that you have an obligation to be pure and that part of the help for him avoiding pornography is your purity before marriage. Now you can look at me and say you're blaming the victim. Trust me. I'm going to tell you this. I've said it. David says it. Stephen says it in our counseling appointments with you. We are hard on the men and on each other. We don't cut them slack. You always accuse us of that, and it's not true. Men are humiliated before other men, and they are disciplined, all right? But be pure before marriage. Help your daughter be pure before marriage. Don't think that immorality all of a sudden stops because you have a wedding vow, all right? 
And then the final thing I would say is always think in terms of pornography as being false intimacy. And that will help you with men. If you want to get inside the perversity of men's brain, remember what my brother said last night. Men always want intimacy without fruitfulness. Okay? They don't want to have to talk to you. They don't want to see your moles. They don't want you to give birth and get pregnant. Now, I know that's not true, but you have to think that way. That's the seduction of pornography. And you might not want to look it in the face, but it may help you to minister to your husband. If you think that the elders are not being hard enough on your husband, talk to the elders. But if they tell you what they're doing, if they tell you we actually are being very intense, then submit to them. <laughs> you know, we, we, we get tired of being accused of being soft on one another. Well, okay, she's asking how does it help for you to know that it's false intimacy, and that's a good question. And what I would say is, <laughs> and this sounds wacko, but I'm going to say it. You want to be a woman that your husband wants to be intimate with. Does that make sense to you? And so, for instance, don't get headaches. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say. And I say, I know. <laughs> but that's what pastors spend our lives doing, is saying things that are easy for us to say. You know, another thing is, be ready when your husband comes home. Have the children in order. Have the house cleaned up. Don't dump on him. Ask him to dump on you. Talk to him. Now, is that sort of what you're asking Okay, thanks. And uh, we'll stop. Let's pray.